Welcome to Unfuck Your Brain, the only podcast that teaches you how to use psychology, feminism, and coaching to rewire your brain and get what you want in life. And now here's your host, Harvard Law School grad, feminist rock star, and master coach, Kara Lowenthal. Listen up, y'all. If you are a certified coach from any certification, or you are a therapist or, you know, social worker, psychologist, psychotherapist, any therapist who works with cognitive-based approaches, I have something for you. It's free. It's essential. It's concise and powerful. And it's coming soon, but you have to opt in to get it. I have created a brand new private podcast called How to Coach Like a Feminist, Adding a Feminist Lens to Coaching or Cognitive-Based Therapy. So whether you are a certified life coach or a licensed mental health professional, this is essential listening if you work with women or people socialized as women. You may not identify as a feminist, but society identifies your clients as women if they are women or socialized as women. And that means that their brains are being impacted and your brain's being impacted by how society thinks about and treats women. That is why having a feminist lens on your coaching or on your cognitive-based therapy is so important. So in this private podcast, I'm really distilling down to the essence the most important, powerful points on kind of every stage of having especially a coaching, but also some forms of a therapeutic relationship from how you market and describe yourself and your services from a feminist lens, how you create the container and the relationship with your client, with a feminist lens, which is something that is so often overlooked, how you actually coach or provide services and kind of tools, how you help clients deal with setting goals in the container of coaching or therapy from a feminist perspective, given all of the complex socialization that plays into how your clients or patients will think about themselves and where they're trying to get. It is totally free, but it is on a separate podcast feed. Listen to me, it will not air on this podcast feed because it is very specialized to people who are coaches or licensed mental health professionals. So you need to opt in to get it. Episodes start airing on September 18th. This is a limited series. So you want to sign up now, get access while the getting's good. Send your email to plus one three four seven nine nine seven one seven eight four if you prefer to text. And then when you're prompted, send the code word coach. Again, that's send your email to plus one three four seven nine nine seven one seven eight four. When you're prompted, send the word coach. Listen to me. I want you to use your good email. You know what I mean? (laughs) I just signed up for something the other day and I was like, I got to give them my real email so I actually see this email because my send stuff to this email email has like 300 messages in there a day and I'm just deleting everything. So you want to get access to these episodes. You want to know they're happening. Don't let them get lost in like spam about shoe sales send your good email address. Okay. Or you can go to unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash coach. Nice and easy. Unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash coach. Come sign up because I'm going to be dropping some wisdom and you're not going to want to miss it. Hello, my chickens. I always say I'm super excited for these interviews and I am, but it's even more fun when I get to do these with my we call our friends, our friendly, yes. friendly acquaintances on our way someday, hopefully to a true friendship. And I'm particularly excited about this book because 
fear and anxiety are, I think, like the emotions that drive people to find my podcast in the first place. So a lot of you listening, fear may sound strong, but certainly worry, stress, anxiety, whatever you call it. These are like, to me, variations on fear. Although I just had a very spirited debate with my fact checker for my book about whether anxiety and fear <laughs> spirited different emotion. Mm. We have a lot of spirited debates, my fact checker and I. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm here with Farnoosh Tarabi, who is an amazing author, and she has a, I'm going to have her tell you all her accomplishments, but she has a new book out called A Healthy State of Panic that we are going to be talking about. And I believe the subtitle is Follow Your Fears to Build Wealth. What's the second part? I'm trying to read it. Crush your career. Oh, crush your career and yeah, win that life. that you're gonna need like way 2020 vision for that. Crush your career and win at life. Yeah, build wealth, crush your career and win at life. So tell us a little bit about you. Kind of, I know you. Yeah, have other books. Tell us about <laughs> kind of your career and how you got. Thank here. you, Kara. Well, fun fact: that subtitle was supposed to be "How to Win at Life When the World Is Out to Get You." <laughs> <laughs> Right. My Jewish family would have loved that book. It would have sold really well. I mean, that's sort of like the joke that my husband, whenever I get upset or worked up about something, he's like, Farnoosh, the world is not out to get you. And I'm like, no, but it is. Like, it's me against the world. And I think it could resonate. But thank you for having me on your show. This is, I was like, can we tone this down a little? She's like, can we get a little more specific? (laughs) Yeah, literally. She was like, I'm not, I'm the center of the worldwide conspiracy. (laughs) What's your question? Oh my gosh. Well, hello. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I am Farnoosh Tarabi and I am a veteran financial writer and I started in this personal finance world as a journalist 20 some years ago, just kind of like shot out of the gate working at esteemed magazines like Money and worked at Yahoo Finance and I have written books. I have a podcast called So Money. I've worked in television and I've always been a terrified human. And (laughs) it started as a young girl growing up as a daughter of immigrants in Worcester, Massachusetts in the 80s, a place the New York Times has even called nobody's first choice. And today... And then, at least that's honest. I grew up in Baltimore, and this, they were always saying these pretty <laughs> slogans on the benches that, like, it, that were like so inaccurate. It was like Baltimore, the city that reads, and you're like, yeah. the literacy rate here is not that high. Baltimore, the greatest oh. city in the world, and you're like, our teen pregnancy and homicide rates are like the <laughs> highest in the nation. I'm not sure what the greatest. I mean, you know, we're gonna lead with the positive. I did go to a very great book festival in Baltimore once, so they do that's live up to that. Cool. Yeah, but yeah, I feel as though I have had a professional career in personal finance, but also in fear. Because when we talk about money, we're talking about all the things that keep us up at night in some cases, all of the high stakes decisions that are terrifying and scary. And I think rightfully so. And personally, I've had a lot of run-ins with fear, which I go into in the book. And so for this book, my fourth one now, I wanted to marry those two worlds. Uh, I wanted to offer more of my personal life to my audience as they've been very generous with me hosting my podcast. I've had guests on like you and others who have talked about their lives very intimately. It's always connected. It's not inconsequential who we were and who we've become financially, career-wise, ambition-wise. And so I wanted to offer that to my audience, but also have a big idea about around it as we want books to always sort of 
have a big takeaway. This was supposed to be just a collection of stories, <laughs> sloppy stories about growing up terrified. But my editor, thankfully, was like, I think we need a hook, you know? <laughs> That's why you get an editor. They're like, thanks yeah. for these random musings. <laughs> what would we call this? Yeah. And she was like, what do you think is the pattern? And I said, you know, I just think fear is great. She goes, oh, that's different. And let me, I she let me run with also, that. I mean, particularly the sort of, I didn't, obviously, my parents were born here. I didn't grow up as an immigrant, but I come from an immigrant Jewish family. And I do think there's something, you know, you talk a lot about, and I want you to kind of tell the audience about why you think fear is great. But we, you talk a lot about how there's this like, American idea of like fearlessness. I think yes. not just American, but like sort of American specific. And I think that is such a, like, when you think about it, who gets to be fearless? It's like straight white dudes with money. Like, yeah, Jews are not fearless. No. And Iranian immigrants, I mean, women, anyone who's been marginalized, who's had a taste of adversity growing up, like we cannot afford to just, and when I say fearless, I'm thinking like, you know, someone who just goes and does it anyway without any risk calculation is like, I'll deal with the risks later. I can't afford that. I don't know about you. I don't know about anybody listening, but I have things that I want to protect that I don't think will be there for me, waiting for me if I just am reckless and blind and not respectful of fear. And really when fear shows up, I say it's an opportunity to get reoriented with yourself, your values, the things that you Mm -hmm. hold dear, your comfort levels. I know we always want to get uncomfortable and there's always place for that, but there's also a place for like honoring what makes you feel whole. Mm -hmm. In our culture, there has been a very, very strong PR campaign against fear I trace it back to at least, you know, FDR during the Great Depression when he shared with, you know, financially despondent Americans who couldn't even fathom getting food on the table, let alone where their next job was going to be, saying, you have nothing to fear but fear itself. Well, boy, gee golly, thanks. If that's all I had to do. I love that you're going after FDR. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know. I <laughs> You know, I thought I lost sleep over this in the writing. I, I was it. like, You're um, like, who is left in America? Like, I'm not unproblematized. <laughs> I think it's FDR. I'm going to get that guy. Wasn't he in a wheelchair? I feel like, yes, he you know, disabled. he was disabled. So it's not even like I'm going after like the able bodied white man, although he was president. So he did have yeah, a lot I mean, of privilege. Like prestige and power wise, he was doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was telling us this from a place of comfort. And I appreciate, you know, the rah rah. And the like hoping to like rally the Americans. And there is something to be said about wanting to be courageous and wanting to be brave. But I don't think that being fearless and being courageous, I don't think having fear and being courageous are mutually exclusive. I think that no, I think they're required. They can, yeah. As you've said. Right. Right. Like if there's no fear, you're not being brave. I'm not like, wow, it's brave that I just went and got some water just now. Yeah. I'm not afraid. <laughs> right. So totally. There's so much that's so interesting about this, but I, I actually would love, let's like back up for a minute because I kind of want to hear like, how do you even define fear? Mm-hmm. And then I'm curious how you distinguish between, because one of the things we talk about on this podcast quite a lot, obviously, is like when you have anxiety or fear that's being created by your thoughts that is not sort of justified isn't the right word because I don't think we need to justify our thoughts and feelings, but it's sort of, it's like disproportional, right? Like we talk a lot about how socialization creates fear in women that's sometimes disproportional. Yes disproportionate to like what's going on. So I'm curious how you, it's like we want to rehabilitate some kinds of fear, but then some kinds we probably don't find useful. So I'm curious how you even, like, how do you define fear and how do you, before we get into how to listen to it or not, it's like, Mm -hmm. which kinds should we be listening to? Mm -hmm. 
I talk about fear in the book as a natural instinct. It's an abundant resource. It's a <laughs> it's accessible to all oh, of us. If only we could if we could turn fear into energy, then I feel like we'll solve the climate crisis. I mean, in my in my world in personal finance, I'm always looking for ways to level the playing field and like talk about equity and ways to achieve financial equity. And I'm like, if there is one resource we all have access to, it's fear. And I've used fear as a tool to help me figure out where to go next or if I should even go somewhere next. Mm -hmm. It's usually for me the adrenaline that when I face it as opposed to overreact to it or immediately try to push it down because, oh gosh, fear I've been told is bad. So I don't want any of it. It's like when a fly comes on your shoulder, it's like, ah, get off. (laughs) And I have been able to leverage that emotion, that stimulant, if you will, in my body, which is a natural response to me and it's very personal to me. What I'm afraid of is not what you're afraid of. There's probably overlap, but the reasons that I'm afraid of certain things go way back as do yours. And so it's important to acknowledge the fear. It doesn't always mean to let it guide you or let it be the definitive source of information and be your compass, although sometimes it can be. But I think it's important to at least just take a beat and go, okay, I'm feeling this. Just like when you feel angry or sad and happy and joyful. I mean, I think that we have evolved as a society where for a long time, as of probably 10 years ago, we were all about happiness and that's it. That's the goal. If you feel anything else, get rid of it. It doesn't deserve space. I think we have evolved and I think we have the science now to prove it, that when we acknowledge fears and anger and sadness and grief, just as we acknowledge all the other emotions on the other end of the spectrum as even just neutral or maybe even helpful, we are happier. There was a study done this year. It was across these different universities, different academics who came together and did this study. And that was the result. They found that people who had a negative reaction to fear and sadness and anger were unhappier. And I think that's just because Ultimately, what we're learning is that if you're more comfortable within your skin, if you're willing to accept all of your emotions as valid, you're probably more evolved. You're probably more in tune with yourself. You're probably more self-aligned. I'm not saying your life is perfect, but you're probably coming and reacting from a place of more integrity, right? Like Because you're just like, I'm paying attention to what I want and not doing what I think is expected of me. Yeah. So how do you, like in your own life, how do you distinguish between or differentiate between fear that you want to kind of give credence to and listen to and fear that you sort of want? It's not dismissed, obviously. I mean, I think obviously a lot of what I teach is like, how do you change those thoughts? They're very Mm -hmm. ingrained. But sort of fear that you think is offering something valuable and fear that may be telling you something about yourself, but it's not actually, what it's telling you is like, you know, this is a not helpful thought pattern. Right, right. Like- I'm afraid of ingesting cilantro. If it's on my taco at the restaurant, I'm not taking the food back. Like it's just going to have to become part of my night and I'm going to deal with it. I am afraid of crowded elevators, but I still got to get to the 10th floor. And I'm, you know, like, so there's like these sort of everyday jitters that I guess more like phobias. Mm -hmm. That is not what I talk about in the book. Instead, what I talk about in the book intentionally are these fears that tend to perk up in high stakes moments in our lives when Mm -hmm. The decision is going to matter. Mm -hmm. It is going to have consequences. It will cost us something. There will be trade-offs. 
And so I talk about like the fear of loneliness, the fear of rejection, the FOMO, which comes up so often in our careers and in our financial lives, the fear of exposure, which is sort of a newer topic. I couldn't really find much on this in the, on the internet, except that we ha- I did find the opposite of this, which is the love of exposure. <laughs> we loved. Well, especially on the internet. I feel like people yeah. who love exposure are more on the internet. Than yeah. Like vulnerability and, oh. you know, bringing your whole self everywhere all the time. I'm sorry. I'm not doing that. Also, a lot of people who think they love vulnerability, what they love is just to put everything out there, but they're not interested in hearing anything that they don't. Like, yeah. We have a whole other episode about that. Yes. Yes. And so when I listen to fear, it's usually when I'm staying up at night, you know, when it's like really, it's not going away. There are varying degrees of fear. There's the fear that just sort of comes and goes. There's like, you know, oh, it's just, you've learned how to temper it because if you always allowed this fear to stop you, you would never get on the plane. You would never get in the, you know, you'd never maybe leave the house, but you've sort of like, recognize that there are these fears that maybe you just inherited from the world around you and they're not really yours. In other cases where it really matters to listen to fear, I think is when, again, it is the sort of fear that's telling you, you should take a minute and reassess, or maybe you're walking into some conflict that you don't want or a distraction that you don't want. So yeah, I mean, it's in all cases, I think it's worth like stopping going, okay, where'd you come from? What do you want me to protect? Mm-hmm. If there's no if there's no there there, then you can move on. But if there is some really concrete answers to those questions, and I think they beg a reflection. Yeah. I mean, I think you can think of fear as like your body's producing fear when your brain perceives a threat, right? Mm-hmm. And then when you pay attention to that is when you get to determine, okay, well, what is my brain like coding as a threat and why, right? Sometimes it's like an email from my boss and sometimes it's like an investment that sounds too good to be true or whatever is... Right, whatever's right. going on. And that gives you this opportunity to check in with, you know, do I like this reason? Do I think this thing needs to be protected? Whatever that thing is. Do I like sort of what decisions I'm thinking about and my reasons for them? I wonder if we can dig into this, like in the example of financial anxiety, since mm-hmm. finance is kind of your, your core. Can you talk a little bit about how people's financial anxieties manifest? And then we can kind of mm-hmm. talk about mm-hmm. how you think about them. How we feel about money as adults typically stems from how we have been introduced to money growing up and how money has been playing a role in our lives since we were young and the experiences we've witnessed and had. It's why on my show, I typically ask guests, tell me about a money memory growing up because Mm -hmm. there is always a dot to connect. And so when we have, (laughs) yeah, I know, unpack that. When we have fears around money as adults, and there are so many, there's the fear of never having enough. There's the fear of talking about money with your partner. There's the fear of facing your debt. There's the fear of investing because it's uncertain. There's the fear of starting a new business or closing a business or starting your new job. Or of course, asking for more money is terrifying. And a lot of it is because it also has flavors of the fear of uncertainty and the fear of failure. The fear of money in the book is central. It's like chapter six, there's nine chapters, and it's because I wanted it to be around all these other fears because it tends to show up in concert with these other fears. And so how you get to having fear with money is usually a buildup. It's usually because you experienced stuff growing up 
And it could have been way in the past. It could have been more recent because we know as humans, we tend to put a lot of emphasis on more recent experiences. So if you lost your job or you, your partner lost their job or you lost an investment two years ago, you're going to be a lot more scared about that now and thinking that that might happen again, even though in the history of your career, it was probably just one incident. But we tend to not look at the whole picture. And that's, I think, what sometimes the fear of money wants you to do. It wants you to get educated because that's the gap. When there is a gap in knowledge in anything, that is fertile ground for fear. And so your job as an adult who's now evolved, who has goals, who recognizes that maybe you grew up with a certain set of principles around money that you don't want to continue, you don't want to continue to uphold, you have an opportunity here to go when fear shows up, oh, it's probably because I don't know enough. You have to humble yourself a little bit. I do this all the time, even though I'm a financial author and an expert. I'm mm-hmm. I'm a student in, in actually the, the world of money. That's how I end up being able to be someone who can give information. I don't just know this stuff. <laughs> I have to learn it. And so when the fear of money shows up, I say it's sometimes an opportunity to learn more. It's the nudge to say, okay, well, what do I not know? Because this does seem scary to me, although I see everybody doing it. Although I know everybody, all the experts say I should do it, but deep down, I don't feel good about this. And then you pair that education too, I think, with not just education like book education or, you know, looking up stocks online or looking at like historical stock charts or whatever, if investing is your fear. But you also want to think about how did I get here? Like, did I have an experience again growing up or were there influences, external influences that got me here? Because sometimes when we fear money, it's like, it's not like the other fears in the book where I talk about like emotional fears, like loneliness, rejection. Mm -hmm. Money is just a tool. So when you're afraid of money, I say it's typically it's because you're afraid of your relationship with money. Mm -hmm. So that's where you want to start the exploration is that relationship and how that relationship started, how it's evolved, how it's transformed. Is it abusive? Is it communicative? Is it not? Like, In that exercise, when we trace it, when we trace our financial relationships to their roots, we may discover a lot about ourselves and who we've been surrounding ourselves with and maybe the myths that we've been upholding. And then you get to a place where you're like, oh my gosh, this fear is actually a fallacy. And again, what like we talked about earlier in the show is that, yeah, sometimes fear is not the thing. Fear is not what you follow, but it is the exploration of that fear that offers you some gems and the wisdom to go and do the next thing, which in a lot of cases for a lot of us, when we have fears around money, it is to rewrite that narrative around money that is keeping us down. I, for example, for a while thought that making too much money was not a good thing for me as a woman. (laughs) Let's unpack that. I came to this realization actually after I wrote When She Makes More, my book about female breadwinners. I was doing great financially. No secret, I was the breadwinner. I talked about it. I promoted it. I wanted everybody to, at least once in their lives, all women to experience being a breadwinner. It's a great place to be. But I would see others around me in personal finance making more money because they were really leveraging digital assets. Like they were creating workshops online. They had courses, they had subscriptions. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I've totally missed that boat. I need to get on that boat. And I talk about this actually in the chapter on FOMO, but I was afraid to honestly pursue it to the extreme because 
I thought if I actually become a millionaire, that's going to come with a lot of baggage. Like I'm worried that it's going to cost me my time. It's going to cost me my relationships with my kids and my husband. I'm afraid that it's going to demonize me in the eyes of like people who actually love me because Here's the thing. In Iranian culture, I didn't see women become breadwinners, let alone really financially ambitious millionaires. And in our culture, women who are money-minded and money-focused, they are characterized often as having their priorities way effed up. Right. I mean, let's just pause on that. Like, I cannot imagine a man saying, "No, well, I don't want to make a million dollars because it'll cost me my relationship with my wife and kids and people will dislike me and lose respect for me. Like, that is... I will go out, my fact checker would yell at me, but I will go out there and say, I don't think any man has ever said that, right? No man has ever been like, if I'm too financially successful, my wife and children will not love me and leave me. Or yeah. Like, right? Like that's, that's <laughs> and how so they're socialized. It exactly. I mean, I would bet, I would bet on that. And that was my fear. And so where did this fear come from? I kind of stated it. It came from, you know, growing up in my culture and also not just Iranian culture, but American culture too, because you can watch like Real Housewives and all those women who, even the ones that maybe are independently wealthy, like Bethany Frankel, right? Like I respect her, but I think she also probably, there are some people who would say, well, you know, that's the reason she lost her husband and and got divorced and blah, blah, blah. is because like she was just focused all on her and her career, blah, blah, blah. It's like, whatever. And like your intelligent brain knows that that's all BS, but it's just so ingrained. It's just that's even that deep socialization. Right? Yeah, I and mean, I think a lot of what you're talking about is even from the beginning of this. Of sort of, you just said a bunch of things that I think are important. Women are socialized to believe that they don't understand money and that money is a thing that men do and know about. Mm-hmm. Like I cannot even among my like high performing, high earning coaching colleagues, I see them like deferring to men in, as financial advisors or as mm-hmm. CFOs or whatever, men who are, to be frank, totally useless in these positions, like who are giving bad advice, who don't understand what's going on, who don't understand their business, like these women's businesses, because there's so much socialization around that. So number one, if you feel afraid of money and you're a woman or another marginalized identity, like you've probably been taught that money is not for you and you don't understand it. And the people who we identify with and who we think understand money are like white guys named Brad who <laughs> went to Dartmouth, whatever. Like that's right. <laughs> who, who we think understands money. So, and then of course, this is like in the, from the coaching framework, you just create more and more of that. You think you don't understand money. So you don't learn about money. So you don't make active decisions with your money. So you defer to whoever the men in your life are, your husband, your father, your brother, Chad, your financial advisor, whoever. And then you just create more and more of that. You continue to not understand it. You may be making more money. It feels even more like you have no idea what's going on. So you you just get stuck in that cycle. And then we're afraid to – I think the other thing that happens with women is that they're afraid to make financial decisions because they don't want to confirm that that's true, that they didn't know what they were doing. Yeah, because – Failure is just part of it. And I think if a man fails at money, it's like, well, it was just, you know, I took a risk. I'll try again. Right. Like I'm, a big, I'm a badass. I took a risk. Right. But women are yeah. socialized to be so risk averse. Okay. Wait. Then the last thing you were just saying, the socialization around like women are also, it's like, not only do you not know about money and you don't understand it, but also it's bad and you shouldn't have too much of it and yes. nobody will like you. you. You'll be greedy. Right. I just, right. my friend Elise Lonen wrote a book called On Our Best Behavior. It's yeah, a New York Times bestseller. She, weeks. Oh, you're going to love speaking with Elise. So she talks about how, you know, the seven deadly sins and greed and gluttony. And I, I think they're, I don't know if they're different or the same, but she and I talked about how 
these sins were almost exclusively targeted at women. Like we, right. women felt like they were the ones being told, like, don't do all of these things. Whereas like it was virtuous for men to like go out there and earn right. as much as possible and not for women. Right. And so all this to say that I, even as a financial expert who studied finance, who felt very fluent in finance, had these hangups. So where does that leave everybody else? My breakthrough was when I spoke to a money coach. It was for actually an article. We weren't even having a real meeting, but she and I did sort of have this aside. And I said to her exactly what I told you. I said, you know, I think I'm doing fine. I don't want to like push the envelope. I don't know what would be on the other side of trying to break through seven figures. And she was like, well, don't you want more power? And I said, no, that's actually it, right? Like, I don't want power. And she goes, socialized to not want power. Yeah. Yeah. And she was like, wait, 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 what's wrong with power? And I was like, well, I just feel like that's not who I am. And she goes, that's because you are looking at it through one lens, power to take over, power to conquer, which is the sort of equation of money is power in our society. We think you have money, you have dominance. Because we've seen how men use Mm -hmm. power a lot. She said, let me offer you something different. Let me offer you that power has many use cases. There's the power to uphold. There's the power to heal. There's the power to connect. There's the power to all the things that I think are more your style and your jam and your pace. And I was like, yeah, that's true. So I guess touche. But I said, you know, I I still don't want it. And I was very like insistent. The fear was insistent. You deconstruct someone's belief and they're like, Touche, but still, I'm gonna. Yeah, stick but with still, I said, but I'm still afraid. Maybe I'm not afraid of power anymore. I accept that. Thank you, but I'm still afraid of the sacrifice. I'm afraid of the trade-offs that I thought were necessary to make more to like double my net worth. I I would have to necessarily work more hours, work harder, spend time away from my family. And she goes, well, I'm gonna tell you this. Like you are smart you can figure out maybe a different blueprint. And that was the work. You know, that was my job. Like I actually now had a rekindling, a desire to make more money. I listened to the fear though of like, how can I do this my way so that I don't end up completely abandoning my family in this pursuit? Because that does happen sometimes, right? You get too caught up in like the goal of making more. And so I decided I'm going to do a few things. I'm going to raise my prices. Try it. It doesn't take any work. It doesn't take any time. You just, it's a decision. And I hired an assistant, which was a risk. And I was like, I don't know if this is going to pay off, but I did it with the mindset that I was going to do it experimentally for six months. And so mm. cut my losses and it ended up working great because this assistant was able to take over a lot of the executive functioning and day to day important stuff. And then I could finally, for the first time, plan big ideas and execute on visionary things as opposed to just being this hamster on a wheel that was very reactive in her business. Mm -hmm. I planned workshops. I planned events. I thought of another book idea. And so all this to say that when you're afraid of money, sometimes it's rooted in a fallacy. And also there is some truth to it that I wanted to not be the woman who was like working around the clock to make money. That wasn't happiness for me. I did still want to be richer. So now my job is to honor those fears, still go do the thing, but incorporate a plan that values those things that I want to protect. Right. And I did end up making more money. So that's- This feels so important because what you're talking about is not 
when you say like listen to the fear, what someone might hear would be like, so I was afraid that I wouldn't spend as much time with my family, so I decided not to make more money, right? I took that belief to be true. I chose not to make more money and spend time with my family. Right. And that's not what you're saying at all, right? What you're saying is like, we're going to get to know the fear and then we're going to be able to distinguish between a fear that is really, it's almost like it was a, a value of yours that was signaling to you, hey, like I'm important. Don't yeah. forget me. Don't leave me on the side. Don't like cut me off. And that part you want to listen to. And then the part that was like, other people won't like you and it's unseemly. Yeah. What, right? Like that's the fear that we don't want to listen to. So it's in some, I think to me, this is like the way I usually talk about a distinction like this is like, there's your real values. And then there's like what society has told you to value. And right. You have to yes. do the work of like, which one is which my like family and so they can overlap. Like society tells women to value their family. And you also really do value your family and want to. Right. And then society tells you to value everybody thinking that you are as humble and meek as possible and such a nice person who doesn't ever care about whatever money or being exactly. Or- and I think like I've encountered people in my life who come to me for advice and they're like, do you ever get the feeling that you're like destined for greatness? And they're being really humble. You know, they're not like, I'm going to be, yeah. you know, Elon Musk and I'm so power hungry like that. But they're just like, I feel like there's more for me out yeah. there. You know, I feel like I, there's more impact that I can make. There's more it's almost like they're bursting at the seams because they're working like a sales job at like a design firm. Like, but they have, they want to do a podcast. They want to be on a stage. They want to be like traveling the world. And I go, yeah, I, I know the feeling and it's not everybody who feels this. And if you have this burning sensation to go out there and make more of your life and you're afraid, you got to unpack that. Like you're afraid of what? And then measuring that against your burning desire to go out there and do all these things. And then finding a new map, I mean, creating a new roadmap to sort of like toe that line, right? Like I'm going to still, I'm not going to throw out the baby with the bathwater. I'm not going to like quit my job tomorrow and just start a podcast, right? I have to like make sure I have financial security, make sure that I'm maybe experimenting with all these visionary things over here without just like investing all my money and time into them right away. So I'm respecting this fear that I have of like, oh, you know, that's going to, be risky, but also not neglecting it all together. And that's how I felt with money. I felt like I had a lot more ambition. I had a lot more to create. I was also worthy of it. You know, I felt like, I mean, everybody is worthy of, of financial independence and more as much money as they want to make. Making money and being rich is your birthright. And that was the new narrative that I wrote. It's not that it's going to be making more money is going to be your demise, which is what I had probably more or less believed without articulating it fully, but that was the feeling. Yeah. I think I've talked about this in the podcast before. And I went through this when I sort of, around the time I decided to like do the book and go with it, you know, like sort of just do all this preparatory work that was going to like take things to the next level. I had a real kind of freak out and it actually, I had done the gender socialization stuff. So I was like kind of confused. And then I realized that there was actually like for me, and I'm sharing this because I think people from different marginalized identities, like get different stories, right? So I'm Jewish and there's like thousands of years and you get told the story starting when you're young of like, it's okay to be successful, but if you're too successful or the people, you know, if the Christians see that you have too much money or too much power, too much success, they're going to bring you down. Like this is, there's like a, you know, historically like many examples of, you know, the Jewish population being in banking for specific reasons, right? Because like Christians were not allowed to lend money. So Jews were bankers or they had other whatever positions of power or some financial privilege some of them had. And then that feeding into the stereotype that Jews all 
have a lot of money and are running the world and whatever. And then they would get killed or forced out of the country and all their property would be stolen. And so I had this like real, people use terms like ancestral trauma. They throw them around in weird ways. But I just was told these stories. You're just told that this is what's happened to people, your people yeah. for thousands of years. And so when I started to think about being like, okay, big enough that like lots of people know my name, big enough that like maybe I'm on TV, big enough like that I really had to deal with like my kind of religious and tribal socialization mm. around that and that fear. So I think that just speaks to like getting to know the fear and not just being like, oh, I'm afraid, so I'm not going to do it, right? Like when I really yeah. dug into that, I was like, okay, right now I don't like that as a reason. But I think part of what I love about what you're sharing here is that one of the things that I think makes a lot of bad coaching very stupid and bad, <laughs> and this is the kind of coaching <laughs> I try to teach better, is that depending on who you are, sometimes things are actually dangerous, right? And so mm -hmm. having the discernment mm -hmm. To understand that, I know I want you to talk about that from the financial perspective in a minute, but just to frame it for the people listening, like I talk about this a lot. You know, the, if you are a black person in America stopped by the cops, you have a lot of good reason to be concerned for your physical safety. And that is not a time to be like, I'm going to like positive affirmation myself out of having right. fear in this. Instance. Can I speak to your boss? Right. Right. That's like, not, yeah. That's not right. That's going to work for maybe a white woman and not for you. So I think like, Part of my big mission with this work, and I think you're talking about this as well, is like, how do we use discernment when we are using these tools and we are trying to empower ourselves so that we are not denying reality, but we're also not just being like, well, a lot of Jews have been gone after, so I won't get big. I won't share my work. I won't try to do it. I'm just going to shut it down. Yeah. So I mean, you have to talk about fearing the financial worst. Can you talk about that some? Yes. I think that's a thing people yeah. about. Well, you know, science says that when we, feel pain, it releases this stimulant in the brain that like really, really wants to like stop the pain, you know, like it's, we want to protect ourselves and financial pain, you know, while it's not maybe like getting actually like bruised, it hurts, right? Like when you're afraid or when you see an empty bank account or you experience a bankruptcy or your house gets foreclosed on, like those are not easy things to recover from. Sort of thinking about those worst case scenarios it sort of is an exercise in your brain to like almost it triggers it to like think about a recovery plan right away, mm. you know, because you want nothing but to sort of move on from that feeling as quickly as possible. And you're going to be catalyzed to do something about it. So when we fear money, sometimes I say like you're not fearing specifically enough. You're not really like visualizing this enough. Mm. Like a lot of times we're like, oh, I'm afraid of a recession. I'm afraid of maybe my company going bankrupt and I could lose my job. I'm afraid of the stock market or climate change and what it, it's like, yes, those are all scary things. But in the absence of actually getting crystally clear on how that would affect your personal life and going to the dark side, going yes. to the worst case scenario and seeing it and tasting it you will just sort of be chasing your tail. And that's not a healthy fear in my mind. Like the healthier fear, which is, is sort of like the scarier fear is to, like I said, like really get specific, bring it to your doorstep and, you know, think maybe even a year from now. So maybe you're afraid of losing your job and that fear doesn't really help you find a plan yet. Like you're just kind of like, oh, what if? Right. You're spinning anxiety all the time without actually... So exactly. Now imagine in a year you've done nothing to prepare for this potential outcome and then it happens. 
And in the meantime, you've been overspending maybe, maybe you like lent some money, maybe you went into some credit card debt, maybe you never got out of debt. So now you're in a really dark place. You not only lost your job, but you've also lost a handle on your spending. And now the whole thing is just kind of blowing up. Your whole financial life is blowing up. So when we fear certain things in our financial lives, which is often very personal too, right? Like some people's appetite for risk in their careers is less than others. Some people are like, well, if I lose a job, whatever, I'll just like, I have resources. You know, I have a, I could sleep on my parents' couch. I can just like go work for my uncle or I have savings. And so I think it's all very personal how these financial fears manifest. But when you are able to go to that edge and like, I get this a lot, for example, from moms who have just had their babies or are about to have children. And they're like, I think I need to quit my job because Childcare is exorbitant. And I don't want to be that mom who's stretched thin between working and parenting. And I have a partner who's willing to step in and be the primary caregiver or primary provider, financial provider. So I feel secure in that. But there is this nagging fear inside of them, which is like, is this it? Like, I worked so hard to get to where I am in my career. I'm just going to give it up. What if I want to go back into the workforce? What if, you know, I get divorced? What if my husband dies? What if, what if, what if? And I'm like, hold on to those fears because (laughs) those are legit fears, you know? And so it's like, okay, I get it. I get all the economics of childcare and child rearing and it's your, your odds are stacked against families, financial odds. And so rather than just listening to this fear and going, okay, well, I guess I'll just quit my job. Listen to those fears that are asking you to protect your financial livelihood and your career livelihood. Is there a way to create a plan where you Mm -hmm. could take time off and be present as a parent and have a plan sooner than later to re-ramp into the workforce? Or is there a way between now and having that child or between now and going back into the workforce that you can start to save? What is the conversation that needs to happen with your partner as far as like, okay, you're bringing in this single income. Is there a way to save some of that exclusively for me? Because I'm not an inconsequential provider here. Like my- Can you renegotiate the expectations? Like why is it one person's quitting versus two people are going to go to two thirds of the time? Or what is the like, even just that on off switch of like, well, he makes more now- because of a million reasons, some of which are social conditioning, some of which are discrimination in the workforce, all these things. So that's just the situation, right? There's so many. Exactly. Well, there's so many creative solutions. And I think I totally agree with what you're saying. I teach this as catastrophizing and it's like, you need to actually catastrophize all the way, right? Like, yes, what happens if you get fired? And I think for so many women, what I see is that the thought, like what they're really afraid of is that something bad is going to happen, whatever it is. And then they're going to blame themselves or not know what to do. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, you do know what to do. Like if you actually get through that vague anxiety part is what you're saying. Like you can make a plan. If you come to coaching and I just push you and keep asking then what, then what, then what, then what, Mm -hmm. your brain actually comes up with answers and it doesn't even take that long. You start to see like, oh, I have these resources available to me. And it's not necessarily like having a trust fund. It's like, well, My mom would let me sleep on her couch for three weeks and then we would do this or then we would do that or that like, so that sort of like the vague anxiety, which you're describing where people just like spin and spin and spin and spin 
is so useless, but really like, it's almost like there's like a pool of water that's only like two feet deep, but we think that it's a million. So we like won't get in the water. And so we're just like constantly running around the shore trying to be like, I don't, I don't know. I can't get across and just running. And if you just walk across, you're going to get a little wet. And then on the other side, it's like only two feet deep. You're going to figure it out. And much better to figure this out now when you still right. have your job than when you're no longer employed. And then you have that added layer of reality. The reality kicks in. Yeah. And so bringing a level of recency and immediacy to that fear, not just one day, what if, but what if tomorrow? What if what now? And what would you do? And that fear is usually asking you to like, go figure some things out. Maybe it's just mm -hmm. first, like, what is my company's severance policy? What do I have in my bank account? How much could I stretch this for? How long could I stretch this for? If I were to lose my job, would I want to get another job just like it? Like it might force you to sort of think about your career trajectory. Like maybe this would be an opportunity to start that mm -hmm. business. And if you really want to do that, what can you do now to kind of set that groundwork for that? So you're not just kind of scrambling once right. you're unemployed. Well, I think the last piece I want to hit on that is so important because you mentioned starting a business is like, and I'm obviously thinking about it as an entrepreneur that a lot of reason like women fear financial risk partly because of the socialization that like you can't be trusted and you don't know what you're doing and you don't have the money. If they fail, right, then they beat themselves up as opposed to like all financial risks sometimes end in, sometimes they end in failure, sometimes they end in success. That's why it's called a risk and not a sure thing, right? But so if you want to grow your financial future, like it almost always will involve some risk. Even if you're in a company, you're going to have to ask for a promotion and a raise and you might hear no, right? You're going to have to try to get a job somewhere else. You might get rejected a few times. You're going to have to try to start a side hustle. So having like the fear that is like, don't even take risks because what if it doesn't work out perfectly, I feel like is a fear that women really have to grapple with and get through in order to create more financial stability, longevity, legacy, whatever it is they want to create. Yeah. Perfectionism. I just did a podcast on that, you know, and just how it's the death knell, you know, like and really perfectionism is just like, you just can't not give up the control. It's a really unhealthy relationship with uncertainty. Yeah. And uncertainty is the only certainty in life. That feels like a good place to <laughs> Uncertainty is the only certainty in life. Go out and be afraid. Yeah. But just get to know your fear. But buy the book and then you will be yes, more equipped to handle the fear. Exactly. You can go to a healthy state of panic.com, a healthy state of panic.com. And would love for you to check it out. There's an audio version. There's a hardcover. Come for the advice. Stay for the funny stories of growing up the daughter of immigrants in well, Worcester. Read the book to learn about what happened to you on the Today Show. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The book to find out. Yeah. That's terrifying. Oh the time I left my kids at a birthday party, the wrong birthday party for hours. And I might do that again. That was not a mistake, I, as it turns out. <laughs> I was like, can we drop kids at birthday parties with the wrong You ones? could. I mean, I will I, you, start trolling Brooklyn looking. Do you, where in Brooklyn are, well, I won't, I, there's this soccer place in Borham Hill and mm -hmm. my kids got invited there for a birthday party. And so their babysitter took them. The babysitter stayed with them. And when they got home, they were like, it was great, but my son did not have a good time because he didn't know anybody there. And I was like, how is that possible? <laughs> 
<laughs> you stayed for the whole time. You got goodie bags. You ate all the food. You played soccer. Like, I've never seen these children before in our lives, but we're just going to stay at this party. <laughs> well, the babysitter didn't know, right? Because she's just taking him and we had gifts and everything. We- so long story short, it was the wrong birthday party. He was supposed to go the following Saturday, same place, same time. <laughs> and... Since nothing happened other than just like a confused five-year-old, but still had a great time, ate lots of cake. I was like, this place hosts birthday parties around the clock on the weekends. (laughs) Like, I'm just going to drop my kids off. Just text me the address. I have some... (laughs) Yeah, my friends go buy Furnish's book. I'm gonna see you at your book launch party in a few weeks. Yes, I'm so thank you for coming. Yay! Yeah, of course. I'm working on my outfit already. Oh, all right, my friends, go buy the book. Thank you for coming on. Thanks, Kara. If you're loving what you're learning in the podcast, you have got to come check out the Clutch. The Clutch is the podcast community for all things unfuck your brain. It's where you can get individual help applying the concepts to your own life. It's where you can learn new coaching tools not shared on the podcast that will blow your mind even more. And it's where you can hang out and connect over all things thought work with other podcast chickens just like you and me. It's my favorite place on earth and it will change your life. I guarantee it. Come join us at www.unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash the clutch. That's unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash the clutch. I can't wait to see you there.